You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. On the July 1st episode of the Ezra Klein Show from Vox, I never miss an episode, I'm a total Ezra fangirl. Ezra spoke with the head of the Public Religion Research Institute and the author of The End of White Christian America. Robert Jones. During their convo about the demographic changes that drove racist white evangelical Christian voters to embrace wife-discarding, porn-star-fucking, non-church-going, pussy-grabbing rapist Donald Trump, Klein and Jones discussed the rise of the nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. These are people who report no religious affiliation at all. Nuns now make up close to 25% of the population, a huge spike over the last decade, there are actually more nuns out there than evangelical Christians. Now, if only we could get the nuns to vote as reliably as the evangelicals do. But anyway, young people are four times likelier to be nuns. 40% of people under 30 are nuns, and many young nuns are actually former evangelicals. So why are they leaving their churches? Jones says the political partisanship of evangelical churches is one big reason, but it is not the only reason. We asked them the reason they left. About a third of them um, uh, cite specifically negative treatment of gay and lesbian people or negative teachings about gay and lesbian people as, you know, as a reason why they left. So that's a one way in which um, I think a very particular, you know, and prominent um, issue on the on the on the political right came to be at odds with, um, you know, the younger generation. What Jones said there certainly jibes with something LGBT activists have long said. Young people are more likely to know gay people, and as a result, they're less likely to be homophobic. And when forced to choose between their gay friends and the lies they've been told about gay people by their parents and their preachers, you can count on young people to choose their gay friends. Or you could. As USA Today reported at the end of June, right before Pride... Young people are growing less tolerant of LGBTQ individuals, a jarring turn for a generation traditionally considered embracing and open, a survey released Monday shows. The number of Americans 18 to 34 who are comfortable interacting with LGBTQ people slipped from 53% in 2017 to 45% in 2018, the only age group to show a decline. And that was after another decline from 2016 to 2017. And the numbers... They got even worse the further into the survey you dug, the annual Accelerating Acceptance Report from GLAAD. In 2016, just two years ago, that report showed 62% of young men described themselves as allies of LGBTQ people, and today only 35% of young men call themselves allies. The number of young women who call themselves allies to queer people fell 13 points from 65% to 52%. The authors of the study and a lot of folks who've read it, dug through it, they're blaming Donald Trump and they are right to blame Donald Trump. In 2016, the GOP approved the most homophobic anti-LGBT platform in its history. And then a minority of American voters, thanks to the Electoral College, managed to stick a bully in the bully pulpit. Just as Trump's blatant racism has had an impact, Trump's blatant anti-queer rhetoric and anti-queer policies have had an impact as has the generally toxic nature of social media and online quote-unquote discourse. The anger and hatred boiling out at us from our phones 24 hours a day, that's having an impact too. 
but it's only the numbers for the young that seem to be in free fall here. And again, young people are likelier to know queer people, and knowing us used to immunize someone against homophobia and anti-queer attitudes and make them likelier to be allies, but that no longer seems to be working. There's a disturbance in the force. Why? What is it? I have a theory, and it's right here at the end of this limb. I am concerned that we queers are contributing in a small way, emphasis in a small way, to the collapse we're seeing in support for LGBTQ people among the young. I don't think we're driving that collapse, but we're not helping necessarily to slow it either. It seems to me that at some point, maybe it was the rise of Tumblr or the Twitterification of our brains or that moment when outrage became its own reward, we went from the gay friend you might actually like if you got to know us to a test you were almost certain to fail. I know queer people, young and old, who can't keep up with the current lingo where gender and sexual orientation are concerned. LGBTQQTIAA2SPK, what was that again? And there's an awful lot of jumping down throats that goes on out there, particularly online, when someone gets anything wrong. When someone doesn't know that pansexuality isn't the same thing as bisexuality, or that to be non-binary isn't the same as to be agender, or someone doesn't know that some men might need abortions. There's this attitude that we shouldn't have to explain anything, that we shouldn't have to do the emotional labor of educating the cishets because true allies would educate themselves. And when one of those damn cishets doesn't know something already, they get yelled at. We don't explain because we shouldn't have to explain. So we explode, which means we've raised the bar on allyship from be kind, have an open mind, listen to us, to don't you ask any questions, don't you expect anything from us, and don't you ever get anything wrong. You know, in all honesty, sometimes when I get online, I get offline a few minutes later feeling like I like queer people a little less than I did before I got online. Is it any wonder that young straight people who are online constantly and are more likely to know queer people who are also online constantly, we're blowing up and calling out are the norms, is it any wonder that they might be liking us a little bit less now too? Don't get me wrong. I was an angry young fag when I came out, and I am still an angry fag today. There is a lot to be angry about. But it's important to distinguish between ill-intentioned enemies pushing falsehoods and well-intentioned friends making mistakes. And it's important that we reserve our righteous anger for our enemies. Because blowing up at our well-intentioned friends or potential friends, that just creates new enemies. And we don't need any more of those. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as long, more guests, no ads. Rob Walker, old friend of the show, joins us to discuss employment issues and answer your work-related questions. Hey, Dan, love the show. Uh, I was in a relationship for seven years with a girl that lived in my cul-de-sac. We never really had a whole lot in common, but our sexual chemistry was completely off the charts. Occasionally, I would videotape our sexual endeavors and considered those videos more valuable than gold. Our relationship ended mostly due to our lack of things in common, and now I am currently about two years into another relationship. Her and I have many things in common. We get along famously, and I love her, but the sex isn't what I had with my ex. 
I constantly watch the videos I made with my ex for living that amazing, amazing sexual chemistry her and I had. My current girlfriend would understandably be hurt if she knew this, but nothing turns me on or makes me come as hard as my ex did or the videos I still watch of me getting fucked and sucked by her. My current girlfriend fulfills me in so many ways, and we have sex all the time. It's just not on the amazing level I had with my ex. My question to you, Dan, is uh, how wrong do you feel what I'm doing is? I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with what you're doing. I think it's not helpful, not helpful to you. You know, pre-everyone carrying a porn production studio around in their pocket, before cell phones came along, it was bulky or cumbersome. It was a pain in the ass to try to film yourself having sex. Now it's really easy and lots of people do it. And the issue here is you are constantly comparing sex with the girlfriend you've got now who you like and you have a strong sexual connection to with the sex you had with that other girlfriend that you had this amazing sexual connection to. And rather than that, those memories fading over time, you're constantly revisiting and reliving the sex that you had with your ex-girlfriend and constantly then comparing the sex you're having right now with your current girlfriend and finding it wanting. So it might help if you deleted all the videos and only had these as fond memories as opposed to documented incidents. So a little harder to reenter them and relive them and find your girlfriend wanting in comparison. I also think perhaps some of your sexual energy is being sucked into these videos and you could take that sexual energy and apply it to your relationship with your girlfriend and see if you can't form a stronger sexual connection with her. Now, sometimes two people have chemistry. Sometimes two people just click in a way that that person, either of those people individually are never going to click with anybody else and you can't force it. Doesn't mean you can't work on the sexual relationship you have now. Doesn't mean that it can't improve. Usually it takes honesty and conversations and using your words and telling somebody what you want and being solicitous about what they want and their comfort and, and their desires to, to, to get there. But you can get there. And I think you would maybe get there a little bit faster with your current girlfriend if you weren't spending so much time alone with your ex-girlfriend. So maybe delete the videos or if you can't delete them and I don't think in your shoes I would be able to delete them myself either, at least put them in a place where they're a little harder to access than they are on your phone. Hi, I'm a late 30s straight woman on the West Coast uh, with a dating and disclosure question. So I'm single and I'm wanting to go back out and date, but I always stumble when guys or I guess anybody really asks me about my parents or my family. Um, so it came from a very abusive, totally fucked up, rotten, no good family. And when I turned 16, after a particularly abusive scenario, I walked out and I never saw them again. And that includes my siblings who also contributed to facilitating that abuse. Anyway, fuck them all. But that brings up a pretty tough situation when it comes to dating. Um, naturally, the inevitable question of, tell me about your family, comes up. <laughs> I never know what to say. So for the past, well, 20 years, maybe 25 years, <laughs> um, but for the most 10 
some years ago, I just started to say that I'm an only child and my parents died in a car accident when I was 16. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry. And the conversation doesn't really come up again, thankfully. Um, besides, I never disclose the real truth of such personal information to someone I'm casually dating. Anyway, eventually I'm going to find someone I really like and and I don't want to lie. Um, but in the past, when I tell a guy the truth, they seem to change. Um, and they start to either feel sorry for me or use it against me in an argument, which is a total deal breaker. And I dumped the motherfucker already because that's such a bitch move. Um, so I guess my question is, how do I start a conversation of a touchy subject by admitting that I've lied to them? Even if the lie was to protect that new person, how do I admit that I've lied? Yeah, the trap for you is by the time you realize you really like a guy, you've already told him the lie because you don't realize that you really, really like someone until after you've been hanging out with them for a while and dating them for a while. And you've already deflected the question about parents with the only child orphan story. But this isn't a lie where you've led them to take risks that they might not want to take. You're not lying to them about the fact that you're sleeping with other people. You're not lying to them the fact about that you're already married and you're keeping that from them. So the kind of relationship that they may have wanted to have with you isn't possible. You're telling a kind of, well, rather Baroque white lie to deflect and delay a more difficult conversation about exactly what went on with your family and why you aren't in contact with them anymore. And it's perfectly understandable why you wouldn't want to have that delicate conversation where you have to make yourself very vulnerable with someone that you barely know yet. And so to head off crying questions about your parents or your siblings, you lied and said you didn't have parents or have siblings. The actual truth is worse. I'd rather have loving dead parents than abusive live ones. And you'll have to lay that at their feet. And if they can't wrap their heads around the fact that some people have really shitty, toxic families of origin that for their own sanity, they have to separate themselves from. Yeah, that's not somebody that you would want to or could be in a relationship with. And when you do tell the truth, tell them that this is a deal breaker for you. Tell them that throwing this in your face, using this in an argument to attack you, the fact that you don't have a relationship with your parents is evidence that there's something wrong with you as opposed to there was something deeply wrong with them, which is why, because there wasn't something wrong with you, you had to get away from them. And you deserve credit for getting out of a bad situation at 16, standing on your own feet, rescuing yourself, saving yourself. Those are all signs about not how you are damaged or perhaps not as ideal a partner as another person might be, but signs that you would make a very good and capable partner. The way you took care of yourself, I would like somebody who could take care of me like that. And anybody who doesn't see it that way doesn't deserve you and isn't going to be the right partner for you. When you walk back that completely understandable lie that in no way put them at any risk, send up a flare and let them know that this isn't something that you have a sense of humor about and this isn't something that they are allowed to weaponize in any conflicts in your relationship because that will be the end of your relationship. Hey, Dan. I'm calling from Toronto. And my question is about swinging and group sex and such. So my boyfriend and I have tried 
and participated in a few occasions of swinging. And we have gone to swinging parties, both public, more public and private ones. But it never seems to work out for us. We are pretty good in bed, both of us, we think. And we have a pretty good sex life. We are very good booking. But none of these experiences have been great for us. The weird thing is that we are usually not turned on. So I don't get wet. He doesn't get hard. Doesn't matter the kind of experience that we're having, uh, whether it'd be a big party or a smaller party. It just, I'm not sure why it doesn't work for us. And I'm very interested in the psychological aspect of it. So you could say that it's just not our thing, but I'm just wondering why is that? We're we're both very open-minded sexually. um, So I just can't figure out why it just doesn't work for us. It's fun, but it's not particularly sexy. So the both of us have are pretty turned on when we're alone together. But when we go to parties, it's just, it's really strange. And I was just wondering if you had any input. I like to ride in public. I like to sit in cafes with my laptop or sit in bars with my laptop. And I find the chaos and the noise adds to my focus. I'm able to focus. I'm able to write with chaos and drama noise. If I'm in a quiet room all by myself or with one other person quietly writing, I can't do it. It doesn't work for me. I like that public thing. I like doing it in public when it comes to writing. Not everyone feels that way. A lot of people, I know, a lot of people I know who are writers, who I've, I've talked to, they couldn't write the way I write. Like it, does, it just doesn't work for them. It pulls their focus. I think that's what's going on for you in this environment, in a swingers environment. When you are alone, just the two of you in a quiet room, you can focus and you really get into it and you really enjoy. And that's the turn on for you is that ability to focus is a part of your turn on. Part of what makes sex work for you. And when you're in a big room full of people, you aren't able to tune all those other people out. That you're being pulled, your focus is being pulled this way and that way. And it's pulling you out of the moment erotically with your partner. And your attention is chopped up and diffuse. And that undermines your arousal. Makes the situation and the environment less sexy for you. I don't think you need to wring your hands about this endlessly. I don't think you need to shrink. You just need to accept that although you're very sexually liberated and very sexually adventurous, this is one arena of liberation and adventure that isn't for you. Doesn't turn you off. You can function, but it's not a huge turn on. So don't go or go rarely. Go every once in a great while, but don't go. Continue to explore and find other adventures that work for you in a way that this kind of swinging adventure does not. Hi, Dan. Straight Guy here with a question about pride. What are your thoughts about capitalism co-opting pride? The parade in New York is basically like watching hours of Super Bowl commercials walk by you, with tons of corporations and businesses sponsoring floats and swag and just about everything else. Likewise, corporate social media accounts, not including, say, Chick-fil-A, sport rainbow versions of their logos during the month of June. Now, I have a friend who is gay, and he hates that Pride has been co-opted by corporations. He thinks it's all cynical and just marketing and rainbow washing, and that they have ruined the free-spirited, anti-establishment roots of the Pride movement. To me, that seems like an acceptable sacrifice for the visibility and representation that businesses with huge international reach can provide. I think he, having been born and raised and spent his entire life in New York City, is just jaded. 
and forgetting that there are still plenty of places in America that you cannot have a pride parade for safety's sake. In places like that, representation in media is the only indication that queerness is not some dirty secret, even if it's just a gay couple getting a mortgage in a bank commercial. So what do you think? Has corporate America gone too far, or can we grin and bear the loss of a counterculture in favor of acceptance in the culture at large? I was trapped in a hotel room in Chelsea in New York a year or two ago during the Pride Parade. And it was a little weird because I was there for a work event uh, and I was there alone and it just felt really weird to walk out into the midst of all of this partying and celebrating alone. So I kind of just avoided it. I ducked out to get a sandwich and then ducked back into my room and waited out Pride. And I'd heard so much about the corporate takeover of Pride and how oppressive that was. And I kind of rolled my eyes because I'm old enough to remember when we bitched endlessly, queer people did, we bitched endlessly that these big corporations and beer companies and car companies and mortgage companies, they were only too happy to take our money when we were buying, when we were consumers, but they would never show their support for us by sponsoring a float in the Pride Parade or sponsoring the Pride Parade. Now they all do, and we bitch endlessly about how oppressive it is and the corporatization of pride. But I got to say, walking out into New York that day, past the Google contingent, past the Estee Lauder contingent, past the Nordstrom's contingent, with everybody's pride branded merch and t-shirts, it was a little bit oppressive. But is that not what we were asking for? That kind of acceptance? You know, we weren't marching to say, we're the counterculture, leave us alone, and we always want to be the counterculture. And there are still countercultural aspects of queer identity or identities and queer lives. And a lot of the people, people like me, who are sometimes accused of having assimilated or living a heteronormative life, we're living that queer life in sometimes institutions that had been previously uh, exclusively heterosexual because we were kept out of them on our own terms. And we have queered marriage. We haven't been straightened out by marriage. We do marriage our way, which is different. All that said, yeah, I agree with your friend. However, if tomorrow Arby's and everyone else pulled out of pride and stopped doing their pride merch and Nike didn't release their pride shoes, we would all complain endlessly about how they had abandoned us and abandoned pride. And now might be a time when, ah, as oppressive as it can be, as much as it makes our eyes roll back into our heads, with the Trump administration giving nurses and doctors and EMTs permission to deny care, potentially even life-saving care, to injured or sick queer people if they object to taking care of us on religious grounds. It can literally let us die on a gurney or die on the sidewalk on the street. If Jesus, this might be a time when the pushback we need culturally, this might be a time when Google and Nordstrom and Amazon and Nike and Honda and all of these corporations stepping up and saying, you know what? We support queers matters and has value because right now the federal government under Donald Trump and Mike fucking Pence is coming for queers, attacking queers, harming queers, doing everything they possibly can, everything within their power to hurt us. And so corporate America having to take sides, having to line up on one side or the other of that and choosing our side, maybe that at this moment has value and we can revisit the issue of kicking all the corporations that we bitched endlessly about not being at pride out of pride 
when the Trump nightmare is over and we've kicked all the fucking anti-queer Republicans out of office. Dan, I am exhausted right now. Okay. 40 years old, white, cisgendered, heterosexual male. So I realize that I don't know shit about fuck when it comes to uh, people who are transgender or non-binary or gender fluid, etc. But I thought that we were all on the same page, that they, them pronouns were the universal, non-specific, everybody is supposed to be okay with them because they are applicable to everybody pronouns. But I was just privy to a conversation uh, including some people who identify as non-binary, but still prefer a binary he, she, him, him, her pronoun and get upset at somebody for using they, them. And I just, what I, I, you know, I, I don't generally jump to, you know, pointing a finger at outrage culture because that's the right wing thing to do. But for Christ's sake, if we're going to get mad at people over not be, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. What are we doing here, Dan? What's the, can, can we have a thing that we just know you can call everybody without that? Just something we all agree on that we know says, I respect your identity. I also don't know you and I don't have time to, for the full explanation of your, of your gender identity. I expect, I, I respect it. It's great. Be who you are, but don't make me fucking write a book report just to refer to you in casual conversation. Let it all out. There, you must feel better. I share your frustration at times, but You know, if you look at it from a slightly different angle, you have given someone the greatest gift of all. You have given someone who loves to be upset a moment where they got to be really upset about bullshit. You didn't say anything malicious. You didn't misgender anyone intentionally. You made a reasonable assumption that somebody who is non-binary would prefer they, them, their pronouns, which are typically and overwhelmingly preferred by people who identify as non-binary. And this person or persons that identify as non-binary chose that moment to throw a fit because they're one of the handful of non-binary identified people who prefer to use binary pronouns. What can you do besides say, well... Good to know. Now I know. Try to remember that. And then you make a mental note never to use a fucking pronoun in front of anybody, particularly that person, ever again. It's really not that hard to do. Well, you typically use pronouns when referring to people who aren't there. And then I said, and then she said, and I said, but then they said. That's when we use pronouns. You don't use someone's pronoun typically, commonly, in front of them. And they're easy enough to avoid using if you want to just tiptoe around this minefield. All that said, I think we need to have some sort of Vatican II council. We all need to gather together in a room and come up with one non-gender specific pronoun. A lot of them have been kicking around out there. Z, Zay, they, them. They, them gets confusing, even for the best intentioned people. And we use it all the time. I use they as a singular pronoun all the time. I In my column, you need to go to a doctor. You need to tell them about what's going on with you. That flows. That makes sense. Shakespeare used they, them as a singular pronoun. There is a long tradition of using it. It's weird when it 
comes to referring to a person in certain specific ways because of English grammar. They're coming to dinner. How many place settings should I set? Well, they are coming at eight. How many place settings do they need? People get confused because usually that means more than one person. So that confusion will probably go on until we all get used to it. Language changes, usage drives meaning, or, and this would be my preferred option, we come up with something else. We come up with a new word. Not she, not he, not they, not them, but some word that we all understand is a singular gender-neutral pronoun that we can all deploy. And until that time comes, some people who just live to get upset about this shit are going to blow up at you. And rather than internalize that and feel terrible and angry, just tell yourself, good job. You gave someone who enjoys getting angry the gift of getting angry. And you never have to talk to or think about that person ever again. Hey, Dan, female who has always kind of identified as straight, recently realized that maybe I might be bi. I've got some friends who kind of encourage that. I, I'm finding myself more and more attracted to attracted to the female side. So, and then and you know it it just kind of encourages the, the fantasy of of wanting to do that. And with these friends kind of encouraging it, really makes it so that I feel like I I can't wait for that situation to come up. However, I have had this situation come up twice now in my life where I. I could have a situation where I might get some female action, but I seem to just like freeze up when it happens. And I don't know why. In the first situation, I was, I was a unicorn, a guy and his wife, and I was fine playing with him. But when she got involved, I just froze. And then she never would play with, play with me again because she felt like she was making me uncomfortable. And ever since then, I've been kind of like, oh, you know, if that situation ever comes up again, I'm totally going to go for it. But last night I was with some friends and they, they had some other people come over. Things started moving. People were getting naked. They brought out this machine that would give you a shock and everyone was kind of touching each other with this shock. And it kind of got exciting. And I was the one who was sitting there dressed and I'm like, well, guys, see you later. Gotta go. And I left. So, yeah, once again, froze up, completely froze up. So wondering maybe why I'm freezing up. And then second question is like, what can I do to relax next time? I realize maybe pot would help, but uh, I don't live in a state where that is legal and got a job interview coming up. So I don't, you know, I kind of want to keep off of that right now. So aside from doing that, some other suggestions as to maybe how to relax. Probably internalized homophobia, that old song. That's probably why you are freezing up at these moments where you could Finally, after thinking about it and masturbating about it and imagining it for such a long time, have a sexual encounter with a woman. My feeling is that the scenarios you describe where these things almost could have happened and then you panicked were all kind of high stakes, high pressure, expectation laden scenarios. You're having a three way. You are the unicorn. There's a lot of performance anxiety that comes with being the unicorn for some straight couple. You want that to go well. You don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. You wound up hurting somebody's feelings by pulling away from them. And then there's this, everybody's about to maybe mess around and they're, they're passing around some shock machine as a icebreaker, some sort of high tech zappy spin the bottle, but with adults and who knows where that was going to go. Who knows how kinky that scenario was going to get or how many people are going to wind up in a pile 
and you were nervous, I would encourage you to find a woman. And there are lots of bi women out there who've not yet had a same sex encounter who are in opposite sex relationships, who are interested and curious, find someone who feels as apprehensive and awkward as you. So that's the baseline. So there isn't this pressure around expectations. There isn't this kind of performance anxiety and you're just going to get together and have a drink or maybe make out and no expectations of penetrative sex or touching or oral sex or anything else. You're just going to roll around a little bit and experiment and take it very slowly. Baby steps, you know, people passing around some sort of electric zapper machine and shocking each other and getting naked. That's not baby steps. That's varsity level shit. So is, you know, a unicorn three way. It's not super high varsity. It's not elite athletics, sexual athletics, but it's up there. The three ways up there and it comes laden with expectations and pressure and you're panicking in the moment, probably because of expectations and pressure, but also probably because of a little bit of internalized homophobia. There's some part of you that keeps tiptoeing up to this line and then panicking at that moment, you know, because once you've eaten some pussy, once you've done that thing, you've done that thing. It was scary for me a little bit the first time I put a dick in my mouth because of what it meant, what it confirmed. You know you're bisexual. You believe yourself to be bisexual. I respect your identity. I'm not gainsaying your bisexuality. I knew myself to be gay before the first time I put a dick in my mouth. It still was fucking scary the first time I put a dick in my mouth. So I get it. It was scary because of internalized homophobia. You've internalized some biphobia or homophobia find somebody who feels the same way find someone who's at the same point that you're at whose expectations are low as yours will be low going into a low stakes mellow encounter make out see where it goes hi dan i am in a ms relationship i'm 33 and he is 50 we were together before and we're working on getting back together so we're currently in the consideration stage where we're trying to iron out details and contracts and figure out what didn't work before. And one of the things that is on my mind is that like he is in the past and since we've been talking again, doesn't really perform oral sex on me, even though I always do on him. And I don't really know how to bring it up that it's an issue for me without just coming off like bitchy or I don't know. Men are like sensitive anytime they feel like you're criticizing their sexual performance. And I had the same issue with my ex. Whenever I tried to talk about it with him, he just got really awkward and he would basically flat out refuse to talk about it. And I don't want to feel like I'm pressuring a person to do something that they don't want to do, but I also don't want to not get my needs met either. So my question is, how do I bring this up tactfully to get like the best possible outcome? You said at the beginning of your call that this is an MS relationship. Is that Marks and Spencer, the British retail chain, or was that Master Slave? Master Slave. Okay, so you're in a DS relationship with this guy, dom-sub relationship, master-slave relationship, and you are the... Please. Okay. All right. How long have you been seeing him? It says you, you, you say you reconnected with him recently. How long have you been seeing him? Maybe about two months now. And in that two months time, you've been sucking his dick and he hasn't been eating your pussy. 
And you probably feel a little self-conscious about bringing this up, not just to protect his ego, because men are men and men can react badly to criticism, but also probably because you want to preserve the MS dynamic that you find exciting. Otherwise, presumably, you wouldn't be seeking out a domsub relationship, correct? Correct. All right, we need to separate those two things out because any domsub relationship, you have to be able to step out of role to discuss your needs, your expectations, your limits, your boundaries. And if you can't do that, that's not a healthy MS relationship. You have to be able to set that aside and have a conversation about your fulfillment, your sexual fulfillment in this relationship and making sure that your needs are met too. And when it comes to his ego, yeah, you need to set that aside too. You need to risk your directness being perceived by the guy as you not being tactful. Otherwise, you're not going to get your needs met. And you're at the early stage of this relationship two months in where you should be having these sorts of conversations not to shred his ego and not to upend the MS dynamic or DS dynamic that you enjoy, but to ascertain whether you guys are sexually compatible. And if you know at a base fundamental level that you won't be satisfied in a relationship where you don't ever get any oral, well, then you're not sexually compatible and you need to thank him for his time, ask him to thank you for all the blowjobs and move on. Right. I guess I was just like, I wasn't sure if maybe he took that as like part of the DS. Like, well, you need to have a conversation. Have you asked him? No. Okay, well, you need to ask him. Well, I've noticed that – can we step out of roles for a minute? I've noticed that I suck your dick a lot. You never go down on me. Is this part of the DS thing for you to be orally serviced but to not provide oral service? And then if the answer is yes, you have to ask yourself if that's a price of admission you're willing to pay to be in this relationship. Right. And if it isn't, then you need to get out of this relationship. I agree. And there are lots of people out there into BDSM and DS and you have – options and choices. You know, a, a kinky woman who's self-actualized and knows what she wants and can ask for it really has her choice, really can take her pick because there are a lot more kinky men by a factor of 100 out there than there are kinky women. So don't get into a scarcity mindset where you feel like, ah, I can't throw this guy overboard because I'm never going to find someone who wants the kind of relationship that I want because you can't and you will. But who knows? You, you know, you're two months into this relationship and you've never had sort of a – can we talk about these things so that we can figure out if our relationship, this relationship has legs? You've never risked being direct with him it sounds like. So you don't know how he'll react. Maybe he'll react positively. I was just like a little apprehensive because of like how it went in my last relationship and it just got like super awkward and weird. And, and it never really got resolved. Yeah, I did. Because, because it was awkward and weird, right? Yeah. So this is a good acid test for this relationship. If you can't communicate with him about sex and give him constructive feedback about your needs and what they are and how he can meet them without it getting awkward and weird and him sulking and being an infant about it, then he needs to be your next ex. And that's scary, you know, because we're talking about throwing away something you've got and there are probably some parts of it that you really like. Mm-hmm. But even setting aside whether he ever eats your pussy ever again, setting aside whether that's a price of admission you're willing to pay to be in this relationship, not being able to communicate with someone, fearing direct, constructive criticism and communication with that person, stepping around it, 
that's not something you should accept. That's not a price of admission that anyone should pay. That's very true. Have you given him any sign that you would like to be gone down on? Maybe not. But for me, it's always kind of just been like what you do. Like... and something the man initiates. And yet here yeah. you are in a relationship where you are afraid to talk with him about your needs because your ex reacted badly to that conversation. He may have an ex who didn't like being gone down on and felt awkward and self-conscious about it. And he, absent any request from you, is just operating under you know him reeling because of his ex and that relationship. He may not be being selfish. He may think he's being considerate. You don't know what's going on with him because you haven't asked. So you need to ask. That's a very good point. I didn't even think about that. I've heard from lots of guys who wanted to go down on their girlfriends or their wives and their wives or girlfriends reacted really badly to that, which left them kind of lingus shy in their next relationship. Mm-hmm. Where they just like hung back and waited for the invite because the last time they just initiated that, they're, you know, the person they were dating or a hookup or an ex-wife or girlfriend had a really negative reaction to them initiating. And so now they don't initiate, they wait for the invite. Also true that there are some selfish asshole guys out there, probably more selfish asshole guys out there than considerate guys in this context who just don't want to eat pussy and will get away with not doing it mm-hmm. if they can. But he can't if he wants to be in a relationship with you because you need this. Yeah. I feel a lot better about going into this conversation now. So. <laughs> You know, you, you're, you shouldn't feel you shouldn't feel bad about the question or your hesitancy. There are so many people out there who whose needs aren't getting met, but haven't asked for their needs to be met yet. So he may come through for you, but you got to give him that opportunity. If he can't come through for you, you got to show him the door. Okay. Okay. Good luck. Hey, right, thank you. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a twenty-something woman from the West Coast. And I have a question about, I don't know, commodified relationships or um, trading in sexual favors kind of within the context of a long-term relationship. I've been with my fiance for a little over five years now, and we've known each other for um, most of our our lives. We met when we were very young, but we've only been together as adults. And it is quite normal in our relationship for us to kind of trade sexual favors, which is usually essentially trading me giving him a blowjob for a very in-depth body massage after a really hard workout or him doing, you know, an extra load of dishes that week and buying us takeout. I think it's totally normal and healthy because we negotiate it on terms that we both feel are fair. Uh, But it came up in casual conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and she seems to think that the fact that we have these kind of negotiations where we're kind of equating sexual favors or sexual acts um, with non-sexual acts kind of diminishes the the value of the the intimacy of that act. And it kind of um, reduces it to a a chore. And to be fair, there, there's a part of me that does feel a little bit like giving a blowjob is a chore. I don't particularly enjoy it, although I do enjoy satisfying my partner and I will, you know, do a good job when I'm doing it and I will be invested in the act. Um, but she's worried about kind of the long-term, you know, health and, and sexual health of our relationship um, because she thinks that 
uh, we're essentially we're not sexually compatible. Um, she's the listener of the show, and she believes you know that sexual compatibility is a long term predictor of success of a relationship. And we're both in our you know mid late twenties, so we're still fairly young. And she's worried that us kind of getting married soon and committing at this young age, when there maybe is a potential mismatch in sexual favors. Um, or I'm sorry, in like sexuality, the fact that, you know, I don't want to do these things, but I can kind of be convinced into doing it um, by, you know, trade-offs of chores around the house and, and, you know, purchasing of meals and things like that. I don't think she's entirely wrong in that she has a point that it's good to kind of look at something like that with a critical lens um, and really evaluate whether or not, you know, we're both like comfortable with that sort of arrangement. But I'm wondering, you know, I am young and I do recognize that I could be in the wrong and that maybe this kind of approach is a sign of, of things to come maybe a little bit more long term and that, that that's not, you know, a healthy way to kind of go about intimacy within a relationship. It's not the only time we ever engage in any sort of sexual um, interactions, but it definitely is kind of a part of our sex life that there's kind of this trade-off. Um, and I want to know what, what you and your listeners think. Are, are we headed down a, a path of mutually assured destruction, or is this something that, that can work as long as the people involved are, you know, both negotiating and, and feeling like the terms of the arrangement are fair? I'd love to know what you think. It's not just that the terms of this arrangement are fair. It sounds like the terms of this arrangement are fun. Like you guys kind of enjoy this little commodification around the edges uh, of your sexual life. There's a lot of overlap. You don't go into the things that you both enjoy doing that you do together and you don't have to have this kind of quid pro quo swap meet attitude about. But if you have a positive attitude about this kind of quid pro quo, there's something that you enjoy getting your dick sucked. They call it a blow job. It's work. I don't necessarily enjoy it, but I enjoy giving you that pleasure. And so I'm going to do that job, do that work, give you that pleasure. And you're going to give me dinner. You're going to give me a full body massage, which is work for you. And that kind of exchange of labor, so long as both partners have a good attitude about it, as long as it's a fun and sexy game and not a bitter and resentful exchange, I don't think there's anything wrong here. I don't think you have a problem. What you've described would not be to your friend's taste. And therefore, you should not invite your friend to have a three-way with you where blowjobs are exchanged for Thai food. You should not invite your friend into a thruple relationship with you and your boyfriend because the ways in which you guys have gamified certain things on the periphery of your sexual interests outside the area of overlap – that wouldn't appeal to your friend. But the fact that it works for you guys is not evidence that you aren't sexually compatible. It's evidence you are sexually compatible. It's working. What you're doing is working. You both take pleasure in the pleasure you give and the pleasures that then you exchange. This is not a problem. There is no problem here. The outstanding question, of course, is whether it's sustainable over time. If you find this shifting from fun and exciting game to bitter and resentful exchange of prisoners with dinner being one prisoner and his dick being the other, then you need to find your way back to fun and exciting game if possible. You know, bitterness and resentment and being taken for granted when these things creep in along the edges of somebody's relationship, of anyone's relationship, any two people, three people's relationships, that's a bad sign. But that can creep into a relationship 
entitlement, expectations, resentments, that can creep into a relationship even where two people are 100% overlap in their sexual interests. Not that there's any two people out there that are 100% overlap in their sexual interests, but even if there's a couple where they do all and mostly the things they both want to do all the time, that relationship can still be impacted by bitterness, resentment, expectations being taken for granted. Be on guard for those things, those dynamics, however you structure your relationship. And, and to your friend who is a listener, I think it's perfectly legitimate to raise the issue of basic sexual compatibility because I do think that is important, especially in sexually exclusive, committed, long-term relationships. But one of the things I also talk about a lot is the Venn diagram. You know, you have two people in a relationship and a Venn diagram. There's the area of overlap where there's all those shared sexual interests. And then there are, you know, the areas outside the overlap. And it's important to, particularly in a sexually exclusive relationship, try to move those circles as close together as you possibly can to indulge your partner, to do for your partner, which sometimes means doing something that Never doing something leaves you on the fetal position on the floor in the bathroom afterwards crying, but sometimes it means doing something for them, for their pleasure and making a little bit of a sacrifice, an expectation that they will do for you and do for your pleasure and make a sacrifice in return. That is part of a healthy, functional, sexual relationship. Going there for your partner, doing for your partner, your partner doing the same for you. That is a form of sexual compatibility. Sexual compatibility is not we made a Venn diagram and it was just one circle, complete and total overlap, because there's no relationship where that's possible, where that has ever happened. Hi, Dan Savage. I'm a 33-year-old Canadian living in a small northern town. I've always loved sex. I love sex with men. I love sex with women, with groups, and just by myself. I've never really been into long-term relationships, but given that I'm now committed to living in this small town. It's starting to be something I'm trying. The thing is, I don't have orgasms with other people that often. When I was moving from partner to partner more frequently, it wasn't ever an issue, but now it's starting to be. I never intend to fake orgasms. I just enjoy myself and express that pretty enthusiastically. If somebody asks if I came, I'm usually honest or I evade the question and sort of give them a wink. And occasionally, yeah, I outright fake it. Orgasms aren't what I'm really seeking through sex. I love the closeness and fun and intimacy. And my orgasms aren't that much more intense than other sex acts. Even by myself, sometimes I wonder if it's worth the effort. In my relationship of about a year, it came up near the end that he thought that I'd been coming all of the time, like several times a session. I didn't mean to give him that impression necessarily, but I guess I did. So my question for you, Dan, is, is this a problem? Does it matter if a partner thinks that I'm having orgasms but I'm not? Especially if I'm getting what I want out of sex and I think they are too. And if I go into a new, longer-term relationship, should I be approaching this in a different way? This is a hard one because I'm supposed to beat up any guy who doesn't care, any person who doesn't care, about whether they're partner, particularly their female partner, has an orgasm or not. We talk about the orgasm gap. We talk about the fact that there isn't an orgasm gap in same-sex lesbian relationships, and yet there is a giant orgasm gap in opposite-sex relationships because so many men don't prioritize their female partner's pleasure. So the fact that you, during intercourse, during sex, 
have such a good and cacophonous and loud ass time that your partners think you're coming. You're not actively attempting to mislead anyone. You're enjoying yourself and they are reading orgasms into your behaviors and your responses that perhaps with other women, other partners, that's what their orgasms look like. And so the assumption that they're making that they're doing a good job and that you're coming may not be an unreasonable assumption and their investment in providing you with that pleasure and their disappointment if they find out after the fact that they weren't actually providing you with that pleasure, that's understandable. Now it's annoying when someone makes you coming a referendum on their skills. This is about my powerful dick. This is about my amazing tongue. I need you to confirm that I'm really good at this by having an orgasm. Being under that kind of pressure can make an orgasm more elusive or make an orgasm feel like a grim duty and something you have to offer up to your partner rather than something that your partner is helping to make happen for you. But I can't fault the guy that you're with for being invested in your pleasure if he's invested in your pleasure for you. And I do think that you should be honest going forward when you get into a, a new long-term relationship that you should own your sexuality and own the way it works. And obviously, I, I would wait. I think you could wait like third or fourth, fifth time that you've actually had sex with somebody and you begin to sort of open up more with them about your sexual interests, your sexual history, things you might want to explore. You can at that point weave into the conversation that you don't usually or ever have orgasms during partner sex. You have a great fucking time and they have a frame of reference for that because they've seen what a great fucking time you've had. And you can tell them that is no act. The, the, the writhing around, the, the, the caterwauling, the pleasure, that is no act. I am loving this. I'm having a blast. But something about my body, the way my orgasms work, that's a solo thing. I have to kind of go within myself. And so orgasms for me have always been just me. And a lot of what maybe fuels my orgasms at those just me moments are the memories and the physical sensations and all the pleasure that I've, I've had with you. So you're still a part of my orgasms, even if you're not there. You can say all that. And then listen to what they have to say. Legitimately, some people want to get you off, want to provide you with pleasure, want to make you come. And it's important to their sense of sexual fulfillment. That they're able to share that with you, not do that to you, not demand that from you, but share that moment with you. And if it's really crucial to someone else's sense of sexual fulfillment and comfort and security and whatever else and, and sense of intimacy to share that moment with you, they might not be the right partner for you. But if you find somebody, if you're with somebody and they can enjoy how you enjoy sex in the moment and not be threatened by the fact that you, when you do have orgasms, you're on your own. And then maybe you can take the advice I've given other people who have those orgasms on their own and prefer it on their own to let him be in the house with the door shut and you alone when you're doing it and then let him be in the room but he has to wear a blindfold to can't see you and then in the bed you can have someone tiptoe up to your orgasms and see if then you can't manage to bridge that divide. Not that you're damaged, not that you're broken. It's fine if you've decided this is how it works for you and you're content. But if you want to work on it and someday get to a point where you could have an orgasm, maybe not – because somebody else gave it to you, but an orgasm with someone else nearby or assisting you, you could get there. But I guess this is just an, a long-ass way of saying what I like to say a lot of the time. Use your words. Communicate about who you are, how your body works, and then things will sort themselves out. A guy who says yes to that but then is sullen or manipulative 
You're going to have to show them the door. But a guy who says yes to you and yes to how you work, who's been excited about the sex that you have and thrilled for you when you run off and masturbate every once in a while and give yourself an orgasm, that'll be the guy you want to be with. But you can't find that guy or that girl until you open your mouth and tell the truth about who you are, how you work, what you want. Hi, Dan. I have a work question, I guess. I recently found out that a coworker of mine has had a relationship with my boss. And that's all well and good. But I also found out that my boss has been crossing personal boundaries. Not personal boundaries, but professional boundaries by talking with her about all of the people underneath him and complaining about managers and workers and discussing things that should be between him and his team and things that should be private and talking to her about all of it. And I just don't know how to navigate it. This per- the person that my boss is having this relationship with is a friend of mine. And I don't necessarily want to blow up her spot by reporting it. But at the same time, it's putting myself in a position where I cannot come up with ideas or feel like every step of the way he's using this relationship as a tool of gossip and stopping progress within the company. So I don't know. Do I report it? Do I keep it to myself? Joining me by phone to help tackle this workplace-related question, Rob Walker, who writes the human resource column for lifehacker.com. His latest book just out is called The Art of Noticing. And you can find out more about his book and related Art of Noticing's free newsletter at robwalker.net. Hey, Rob, how are you? Hey, I'm great, Dan. How are you? Uh, I'm really good. Thank you for jumping on the phone. Um, I always appreciate it when you can come on because literally this is the only job I've had in my adult life, running my (laughs) mouth, telling people what to do. I don't know about workplace etiquette, protocol, standards, uh, or which have been changing rapidly in recent years, and that is your area of of expertise. So this woman, her coworker, fucking the boss, what should she do about it? (laughs) Well... It's there's a lot that's kind of left unsaid or unclarified in this and not just for me, but for her. I think that the first step is to step back a little bit and try to clarify like she's kind of identified. Here's what the problem is, but she's a lot more vague about here's what the consequences are. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what the professional boundaries are that are being crossed. And she has this thing where she says he's using this relationship as a tool for stopping progress in the company. I'm a little skeptical about that. I have a feeling he's maybe using this relationship as a way to have sex with someone. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it does speak to something that's destabilizing in you know a, a manager or boss employee relationship is that intimacy. Right. If it's not just a one off, um, if it becomes a relationship an affair, and the, the, the you know the person with more power is confiding in someone with less power about situations, people programs, other coworkers in this way that could make other workers jealous or feel threatened. Yeah. That seems to be what's going on here with the caller that she feels at once jealous and threatened. 
Yeah. And which just as an aside, like this is a good reason. And it's not clear if this manager is, this is a subordinate that he's having the affair, but like, you just shouldn't, you shouldn't have these kind of relationships. However, these kind of relationships do happen a lot. And also relationships happen in the workplace that aren't sexual, but that are involve friendships or just confidences Mm. and people swapping gossip. And it's just, it's kind of part of the workplace. So there, that doesn't mean, Oh, you can't do anything about it. What that means is that you need to spend a minute thinking about what are the concrete consequences? Like when she says stopping progress in the company, like, well, for instance, what, like, what is the thing that is happening or is not happening that would be happening or would not be happening <laughs> uh, if it weren't for this affair, this alleged affair happening mm-hmm. um, and, and, and reverse engineer it that way, because it's actually really tricky to say, well, I'm going to report this. Um, and it sounds like she's got this as far as I can tell, she has this information because it's a friend of hers. Right. That was something I'm deducing must have just told her like I'm sleeping with this guy and and not only told her that I'm sleeping with the guy, but also then told her everything this guy, their boss is telling her about other managers, other employees that he shouldn't be confiding in her, whether they're in a relationship or not. Right. And, when, and Again, that's what I meant by jealous to, you know, to the caller. I don't mean jealous that you want to be fucking the boss. I mean, <laughs> right. there's kind of a professional jealousy here because there's this power that your fellow employee, your friend has by dint of this relationship. That's kind of unearned power within the, the structure of this business. Yeah. And that's toxic. For sure. And, uh, but the thing to keep in mind, and why I think you need to focus on like, actual consequences is that all of this is coming from the friend. And so you have to factor in that maybe the friend is giving you a version of events that makes the friend seem like more important than is really true. It's really hard to say. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think you have to back up and say, okay, so this bad decision is being made. Why is it being made? Well, it's being made because you can sort of trace it back to this, whatever bedroom gossip that's going on. And figure out, is there a manager who I can go to with this? Is there, like, first of all, educate yourself on what the company's policies are because you really want to have your act together on saying this thing is happening in violation of this thing. Some companies have policies against, you know, managers and subordinates having any sort of romantic relationship at all. Or some companies have policies where if the manager and subordinate end up in a romantic relationship, that has to be reported right away so that the employee can be moved out from – figuratively under the person they are now literally under in the right. bedroom. <laughs> right. And some companies, they don't really have this stuff spelled out. So it's just even messier. But when the, if the situ, if like, if what the card you have to play is, is like, I can go to management and say, this relationship is happening. That's breaking these rules. You're definitely going to torpedo these people. I don't know that it's going to actually solve whatever your problem is with the progress being impeded at your company. So I think that the, the, it's the wrong framework to say, like, should I report this or should I not? The framework is to say, what is the problem that I'm trying to solve and how do I go about solving it? And given that you have a relationship with one of the people in this relationship, there may be a more informal way. Of addressing whatever is actually going on. I don't mean to make light. I mean, she sounds really stressed out and it, it is really emotionally difficult, but human beings make up workplaces and they uh, get biased based on relationships, both in terms of friendship or past work relationships, or sometimes 
uh, sex. So that has to be negotiated in a way that if you can try to find a human outcome, it's just better if you're if you're focused on what the real problem is rather than sort of what the 10,000 foot problem is. Well, let's zoom out, not quite to 10,000 feet, but, but, but briefly, the emerging sort of at least knee jerk on Twitter cultural consensus and fuck Twitter seems to be <laughs> that it is never OK for a boss to have any sort of romantic or sexual relationship with an employee or subordinate and any boss who does have that sort of relationship, a sexual relationship with someone with less power within the corporate structure should be immediately executed at dawn. But the, the reality of, of attraction, particularly forbidden attraction, is such that people sometimes get crushes on their bosses, bosses sometimes get crushes on employees, and it is mutually desired. Yeah. And while that can be disruptive, and that's why people often have, you know, in very formal and, and highly structured workplaces, have to report these relationships and get out in front of the gossip, how, you can't ban them. You know, I don't want to quote Woody Allen on my sex advice show because I don't want to get yelled at. But as, some, <laughs> as Woody Allen once said, the heart wants what it wants. And, uh -huh. you know, from Romeo and Juliet on and before telling people you may not desire that thing that you desire is not usually a great way to extinguish desire. Yeah, I think that you have to be realistic about how people people are in proximity to each other and these attractions form. And as you say, the taboo just makes it more attractive in some ways. And that's why I really think that instead of trying to resolve that fundamental human problem, you're better off trying to figure out what is the promotion that didn't happen because of this? How can I fight that? What is the assignment that didn't happen about this? How can I correct that? And um, save any sort of flamethrower, I'm going to management and reporting you and having your careers destroyed until it's really um, necessary. Oh, well, 25-year-old male living in a major East Coast city. I had a question about one of my coworkers. I just recently started a new job, for, and I'm now two months in. And one of the people I manage has, I think, been coming on to me in various ways. This is not somebody I'm interested in or attracted to at all. And obviously, being her manager, it makes it very uncomfortable when she seems to be making excuses to sit near me. She sort of makes very lingering eye contact on things in a way that I interpret as kind of sexual or, you know, kind of flirtatious. And at various points I've mentioned offhand that like, Oh, you know, I'm in a relationship, I'm seeing somebody and that has not deterred her. She's asked some pretty pointed and pretty, I would say explicit questions about, you know, Oh, does your girlfriend, you know, do stuff for you does she you know which i interpret again as sexual like oh does she like blow you does she do this that and the other thing for you i don't really know how to confront her on this in a direct way only because i'm afraid that i might be misinterpreting her and i don't want to offend her or anything and i also don't want to take her you know aside one-on-one -on -one, sort of because my office is pretty open so it's pretty clear to see when somebody's doing that I'm a little stuck here, Dan. Love to hear your thoughts. We constantly hear about the predatory boss with more power, preying on, you know, 
sorry, start over again. We constantly hear about bosses, managers with more power, preying on underlings and subordinates and, you know, manipulating them or saying inappropriate things to them and sexualizing the relationship. What do you do when it's the person with less power, when it's the employee or the underling, the one being managed, who is preying on the person ostensibly with more power? Yeah. I, I, one thing to clean up on this one is like, is she like preying on the, like, I, I'm not really totally convinced. Um, I, uh, think there's some unanswered questions here about, uh, I don't know. I, I think we have to take his word for it that he knows when he's being eye fucked from three feet away in a conference room. Okay. And she's initiating okay. conversations with him about his partner and whether he's getting his cock sucked and well, but, all but sorts of did, things. And if, the bo- if the boss went to some woman who worked under him and said, Hey, you getting your pussy eaten by your boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. That guy would probably lose think... his job if the employee complained and the employee probably should complain. But what okay. do you do in this circumstance? Okay. If she actually asked, it, like, I think that's a little bit more ambiguous, but I, but, but that, that she actually said this, I think he's kind of reading some things into it. But if she's actually saying, does your girlfriend blow you? Then you can just easily say, Hey, um, that's not an appropriate question for the workplace. Uh, don't ask questions like that. And like, that's a simple, that's a very clear cut. There's no ambiguity there. If she's saying, does your girlfriend do stuff for you? Um, that's a little bit different. And again, I would say, Hey, yeah, that's um, somebody exploiting really the need- amb- people exploit ambiguity. People will, you know, flirt in a way that's subtle enough that they have plausible deniability. If you're like, Hey, I'm partnered and this is making me uncomfortable. They're like, wait, what, what? I was just like being friendly and making eye contact and, you know, chit chatting about our lives. It, it can put somebody in a really awkward situation where you know exactly what that person is doing, but you're, but they've done it in such a way that you can't be direct with them <laughs> to shut it down. Yeah, maybe. But Dan, people must flirt with you all the time. <laughs> I right? never leave the podcast studio and to I avoid just you know, that. I, you know exactly how to shut it down. You just show disinterest. And if it's necessary, I just – I'm not totally buying – I think that there's maybe something going on here that's a little more ambiguous than this person is letting on. You think he may be engaged in a little bit of dickful thinking. That sometimes happens. Sometimes men, particularly in the workplace, will round up a little innocent engagement to, oh, she wants me. And that yeah. we have to hold I, that out as a possibility here. I'm, I mean, again, I don't know exactly what's going on. If she's saying, does your girlfriend blow you? That's clearly not ambiguous. If, if it really just comes down to like, she wants to sit near me. She makes long eye contact. Those can be just personality traits. You can tra- you can do a thought experiment. If a, you know, I think he's a straight, I can't remember straight 25 year old male. Yeah. If, a, if another straight guy who you weren't interested in was doing the same thing, would you think that he was coming on to you? or what mm-hmm. um and like make make it past that test before you but if she crosses an unobvious line then you just you just do the obvious thing and say you know you you can't do that that's inappropriate and it's possible that if she's young and just kind of finding her way in the workplace that she doesn't have these basic social workplace skills and then you can just gently i don't think it has to be a huge confrontation i think you can just say you know, listen, that kind of comment isn't appropriate and it's not going to help you in your career and you can't say things like that to me. Would you advise him to protect himself, to document what's happened thus far in an email, a memo to himself or to his manager saying, well, this has been going on and plausible deniability exists and perhaps I'm misreading it, but I'm going to shut this down. You know, if he called, you know, sometimes when people are 
flirting with you aggressively, but towing that ambiguous line, when you shut them down, they get angry. And I'm not yeah. like talking, I'm not like trying to frame this in a sexist way. She's a bunny boiler and she's crazy. Yep. And, and you know, most reports of sexual harassment are a thousand percent valid, but it is true that some people when their egos are wounded will lash out. And currently if a female underling were to report a boss and accuse him of doing what she herself had done, she would perhaps rightly in a corrective for billions of years of women not being believed at all, get the benefit of the doubt that he might not get absent some form of documentation. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's definitely a good idea. And even even if and even if I mean, do it with the idea that you'll never use it, but just write these things down as they come up. But don't restrict it to facts, not speculation, not like she said, what does your does your girlfriend do stuff for you? Period. Not, and I think that that meant blowjobs. You know? <laughs> Weird that that's where my mind. There's a went. big, there's a big leap there of like, does you know, and uh, just be careful about that. But yeah, you should absolutely not thinking that it's going to be a confrontation or that someone's a liar or they're crazy or that it's fatal attraction or whatever. But just because you never know, um, it's a good idea to keep contemporaneous notes. And I would sure. give the exact same advice to a, a female manager who is getting this kind of attention, absolutely, from a male uh, subordinate or a female subordinate. All right. Can we hold you for one more question? Please. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old female attorney. I was hoping you could offer some suggestions on how to address something that came up recently. I attended a seminar to practice trial skills. One of the exercises included role-playing a scene where a woman asked a guy to grab something from her purse. And when the guy does that, he encounters a pipe. During a short break, an older male participant approached me and joked that he'd give me $100 if the next time I did the role play exercise in front of the class, I pretend that I pulled out a dildo from the purse instead of a pipe. While I did not feel threatened by the comment, I did feel he was creepy and inappropriate. It's not the first time I find myself facing a situation like this in a professional setting. However, I particularly struggle when this comes up because at the same time that I do not want to burn potential future professional relationships, I don't want men to think it's okay to make sexist comments like this one to be clear uh the the call was a little muddled there what she said the man at this seminar asked her to pretend she found in the purse was a dildo as opposed to a pipe yeah so this is easily the saddest question (laughs) because here we are supposedly we're in the me too era and dealing with a new world where you know the problems are men being too worried about something. And then here's this guy like, Hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks to say dildo basically. So pathetic. So this person who seems really smart can choose to walk away from this. It doesn't sound like this is someone that she actually works with, or she could confront that person in the moment and say, that's a completely inappropriate comment. Or if you, if you can do it fast enough on your feet to say like, why don't you ask Steve to do that? for a hundred dollars or whoever the, you know, male straight colleague is that could be, why is it funny for me to, mm-hmm. um, and just see if the person has a, you know, and just send your message that way. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a powerful strategy. You know, somebody will say something to you under their breath quietly that's sexualized as this was knowing it's going to make you feel uncomfortable and unsafe. 
And we somehow are feel like, you know, because we're not assholes, we don't want to make other people, even the person who just right. made us feel uncomfortable and unsafe, feel uncomfortable and unsafe themselves. And it can be very powerful to like really game it out in your head that when somebody does something like this to you, that you can turn around and call them on it in a way where, you know, if she turned around and said, why would you say that to me? She doesn't have to mm-hmm. say what he said. Right. That's inappropriate. Why would you say that to me? And allowed in a voice for others to hear He's not going to make that oh, yeah. choice again. Right. At least. Yeah, that's a good you. strategy, too. It's just say, like, why is that funny? Like, why would you give me a hundred dollars to, uh, <laughs> to pull a make him explain it? To, uh, but it's just it's it's, you know, I just really feel for this person because it seems uh, completely gratuitous and retro and pathetic. I, I also feel for them in that, you know, I've seen this advice bandied about that. You can't always, you know, if you want to maintain your professional viability and professional contacts, call people, male people, female people, any people on their shit. Their shit that often they have a – you have a right to call them on because it can cut off professional opportunities down the road. And it's a constant balance trying to figure out what shit you'll eat and what shit you won't and what price you'll pay to not have to eat shit. And what price you're not willing to pay to avoid eating shit. And it's just a terrible position for people to find themselves in in the workplace, whether it's a sexualized, you know, a harassment situation or not or any other sort of shit eating situation. For sure. And, you know, to try to sort of spin that in a positive way, it is unknowable. And it's unknowable even on things that have nothing to do with gender discrimination or or discrimination in general, like just, you know, you never know how someone is going to in the long run respond to your challenging them on anything. Right. But part of not knowing how that's going to play out is that sometimes it plays out better than you think. And sometimes taking that small stand that not small, but like that, you know, momentary stand of like demonstrating I'm engaged, I'm not afraid of you actually can have a positive long-term effect. It can, it can have an effect on the other person and it can have an effect on how other people who are around this situation observing you perceive you in the future. Um, so it's not all losers, you know? Rob Walker, he writes the human resource column for lifehacker.com and his new book, which is just out, is called The Art of Noticing. Go to robwalker.net to find out more about his book and his newsletter. Rob, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It's always very enlightening to talk with you. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. All right. Before we get to your response calls, we're going to read some tweets. Hannah True tweets, a little unorthodox, but puppy pads are also a great, accessible, and cheap option to help absorb the mess after squirting. Hope it helps. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Yes, Hannah, I think that is very helpful. Lay in some puppy pads if you want to squirt cheaply. Blue Moniker tweets, what the fuck with the trigger warning at Fake Dan Savage? Your whole podcast is one big trigger for someone. I love it. I adore you and the tech savvy at risk youth. Keep up the good work. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Thank you, Blue Moniker. We will keep up the good work. We usually don't include a trigger warning, but every once in a while we feel like one might be appropriate. Nancy makes that call. And I do whatever Nancy tells me to do. And finally, Diana tweets, at Fake Dan Savage, just gave a caller the same advice my mother gave me. Don't date a guy who's rude to the waitress. Your mama was right. I'm right. Never date somebody who's rude to waitresses or waiters or bartenders or hotel maids or anybody who works in retail or any other service profession. It tells you how they will treat you too in the long run. 
All right, if you want us to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast so we can find it. And now, your response calls. Hey, Dan. Uh, just calling about your most recent One Minute Wonder show. The act of somebody uh, getting fucked and then that person getting fucked and that person getting fucked all at the same time with three or more people is called a daisy chain where everybody's having fun. Hey, Dan. One of your callers asked what the sex act is called when one person fucks another person who fucks another person who fucks another person. I always call that a human centipede. <clears throat> Never taken part in one, but would love to one day. Hi, Dan. Listening to the One Minute Wonder Show, and obviously you have not talked to anybody in the South. The terms are y'all and all y'all for mixed groups, men, women, combined, etc., non-binary, y'all and all y'all, and it really should spread farther than the South. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Savage Love Live is coming to Chicago, Madison, Minneapolis, Toronto, and Somerville, Massachusetts this fall. Go to savagelovecast.com and click on events to find out more about dates and to get your tickets for Chicago, Madison, Minneapolis, Toronto, and Somerville. Massachusetts. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Rob Walker on Twitter at Not Rob Walker. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.